Hello, and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. This here is uh, Wilderness Week on The Verge. If you haven't been paying attention, you should definitely go check it out. As you may know, the national park system is turning 100, and so we've decided to celebrate by thinking about wilderness in all of its forms. So uh, I went out to L.A. Um, and taunted Emily with baby <laughs> lizards. <laughs> They're the, so uh, the cute, effort. you guys. <laughs> you should, they are you should truly go see the baby. photos. They are, like, really teeny. Like, they are itsy-bitsy. But that's not all we've got. You know, we've also got a feature up right now about ant eradication on the Santa Monica, or the Santa Cruz Islands. First, they killed the cows because the cows were big. And then they killed the goats. <laughs> <laughs> and then they came uh, for the sorry. ants because they yeah the, the ants the, said nothing the, <laughs> as, as ants do. But so you know, there's a bunch of other stuff in there that's pretty neat as well. We've rec- we've put up some of our, our our gear. We actually brought our gear into the office. Those of us at Verge West who do a fair amount of hiking and camping brought our our gear in and talked about it a little bit on the site. If you do read that, you'll notice that everybody in the comments is really mad about the headline because we didn't road test gear to call it the best gear. We were just like, this is the gear we use, so it's the best. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry about that, guys. Uh, I didn't write the headline. But I want to know um, what stuff to buy. I need to know where <laughs> to spend my money. Yeah. Well, I ex- I mean, I explicitly wrote about a pack that I had bought for $50 used on Craigslist, and I didn't even know what the the, the model was. Yeah. Um, and someone very helpfully in the comments was like, oh, it's a 2004 or whatever. Um, oh but the point was, for me at least, that like the best gear is the gear that gets you outside. So right. buy the gear that gets you outside. Like If it's something that's ultra light, then buy ultra light gear. If it's like you sit on Craigslist and you peruse uh, backpack listings until you find stuff that looks good, hey, like that's another way to go. You don't have to like spend a ton of money and you don't have to buy new shit in order to go outside. And if that is the only thing that you take away from Wilderness Week, I will be happy. Yeah. But we've got a bunch of other stuff. We have some stuff about bat lickers. <laughs> okay. Which is what it sounds like. People who lick bats don't don't lick the bats. <laughs> and one of my personal favorites is a Facebook group that calls out fake nature photography. Oh wow! Um, it's Just called like uh, Truth Photos. Be- yeah, Truths Behind Fake Nature Photography. That's um, the name so, like, of the. That's the name of the site of the Facebook group. Yeah. Okay. And so they call out fakes when they see them. The, their tagline is "Say no to staged photos with bullshit stories." And so they 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 post viral photographs, which are weirdly often sourced from the Daily Mail, uh, and then list the giveaways that something is fake. And so we have one of those photos up on the site. It's a frog riding a beetle, but it's unreliable for a couple of reasons. Uh, The frog is nocturnal. Its fingers are on an unusual and manipulated position. And the person who took the photo themselves has several pet frogs. Okay. So they're like they're like the fact checkers for nature photographs. So like the cute animal photo that you see online, like if you want to know what's true, go talk to these people because they will tell you. So it's sort of the flip side of what we were talking about with nature documentaries last time. Just um these these in this case, these are fakeries that don't necessarily um, relate an ecstatic truth about frogs riding on beetles. Right. It's like, it's, you know, they, it's not just about like a shopped photo, although they'll identify those too. It's subjects that are in staged settings or unnatural environments. And so, you know, there are certain things that, that you can tell if you are a, a hardcore nature enthusiast that, that things are not quite right. So they try to contact photographers, but they don't necessarily receive a lot of responses. <laughs> I would definitely encourage everybody to check out Wilderness Week. It'll be wrapping up 
by the time you hear this, but that doesn't mean that the content goes away because content is forever. That's true. So be sure to check that out on TheVerge.com. Hey, you want to hear a good joke? Nobody speak, nobody get choked. So I, I don't know how many of you folks out there have kids. But I feel like parents are probably a little bit more alert to this following story than most people. And it's about mm. EpiPens. So if you are extremely allergic to something, often what's used to stop anaphylactic shock, which can lead to death, is epinephrine, uh, which is a medicine that's basically been out around forever. But there's uh, the EpiPen, which was $47 in 2007. Mm-hmm. It is now $284 this summer, and you can't buy a single pen anymore. So the retail price to uh, fill a prescription today is about $600. Are these covered by insurance at all? It, it, it depends on your insurance plan. Right. I mean, like for some people, probably yes. But like the, the thing is, nothing has um, really changed. <laughs> right, it's and just it costs a, less it's than a, a dollar. steroid, right? Um, it's, it's epinephrine, which it's basically like a, a, a version of adrenaline. Oh, right, okay, yes. So essentially, like w- what's, what's interesting here is that the EpiPen is packaged the way it is because it, it gives you like a foolproof dose and potentially is safer than just having a syringe with adrenaline. That seems like a bad idea. Right. The problem is that, you know, with a lot of prescription drugs, companies get exclusivity, and that means that they have no competition and they can raise their prices however they want. The exclusivity periods kind of vary. I think they're five to seven years for small molecules, Mm -hmm. like pills, basically, and 12 years for biologics, which are things like Abbott, uh, sorry, AbbVie's Humira, uh, which is for rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. And which of these is the EpiPen? The EpiPen is... Because they've been around for a while, right? These aren't terribly new. I mean... No, they're not. But so people with, like, life-threatening allergies, you know, they keep these things around in case you run into, like, for instance, a peanut if you're allergic to peanuts or right. a bee if you're stung by a bee, you know? And they have short short shelf lives, right? So you have to buy a couple a year. It's, it's, it's you know, even if you haven't used it this year, you still have to buy a new one next year right. because it, otherwise it doesn't really move. And so people are getting really fed up by how much this costs. And Mylan is saying, oh, yes, well, we have $100 coupons. But well, the thing that I want to make sure that we're all super clear on is that what Mylan is doing is absolutely normal. Right. Okay? This isn't unusual. Um, it's just that it happens to be a more pedestrian medication need that like a law a large a comparatively large part of the population does need and buy epipens compared to like something for some very very rare deadly disease i mean this 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 all started these stories started to come up basically when people started stocking up for the school year (laughs) and like Mm -hmm. they had to buy new epipens and oh my god they were so expensive and so I want to I want to I want us to cast our minds back to last year when we were talking about pharma pharma bro Martin Shkreli who uh-huh. um, raised the price of an antiparasite drug called Dataprim more than fifty fold to seven hundred fifty dollars a pill. Mm-hmm. And he was you know he was questioned about this and he was like oh I'm you know this is normal and the thing is he's right so I have in front of me a Bloomberg story from February where they they tracked about three thousand brand name prescription drugs and found that prices doubled for sixty and at least quadrupled for 20 since December 2014. One of the biggest increases was a different myelin drug called Alcortin A, which is a combination of a steroid and antibiotic gel that's sold to treat eczema and skin infections. Uh That went up 20-fold. So this is something that is super normal and super common in the drug industry. Um, And one of the things that happens a lot uh, that I remember from my old days as a drug reporter 
is that as a drug starts to get closer to losing exclusivity, mm-hmm. basically pharma companies wring all the money out of it they can. They start right, doing right. more price increases. So I would like to know when we are going to stop talking about specific drugs and specific price increases and talk about socialized medicine. Because one of the things that we know for a fact is that this was published in JAMA this week. Mm -hmm. Americans pay more for drugs than just about anybody else in the world, but we aren't any healthier. Right. Yeah. I want you all to let that sink in. Part part of that is that, you know, um, Medicare and Medicaid pay for uh, a lot of drugs and they are federally barred from negotiating. That was passed, I think, in 2003, so that's a George W. Bush legacy. Enjoy that. And uh, part of it, too, is just that, and this is this is my own personal hot take, capitalism works well in well-regulated markets where demand is not infinite, but, like, you'll pay anything so that your kid will live. Right. Right? Yeah. That's not so, a, that's not a let's, let's put whatever price on this and let the market determine what the price should be. It's like, there's no... There's no cap on what the price should be. That's right. And I mean, like, this this, this sort of idea of having these extremely pricey treatments was really sort of in the modern era pioneered by a company called Genzyme that was bought by Sanofi Aventis. And they made drugs for very rare diseases and sold them for thousands and thousands of dollars. And the difference, it was the difference between life and death for a lot of people. And their their reason for that pricing was that they had done all this expensive research, they had to recoup their costs somehow, and there weren't going to be very many patients, and so they were charging thousands and thousands of dollars. But that seems to be something that a lot of drug makers have adopted. And, you know, I, I saw a couple of very naive columns saying, oh, well, consumer, the problem is insurance, because consumers, you know, they don't really know how much this stuff costs. Right. That's cute. A lot of us don't have insurance. Right. So that's not actually the problem. But yes, like, but even if you're talking about people with insurance, all that means when you have these enormous sums of money being traded between an insurance company and a pharmaceutical company, like it, like what you're saying, it doesn't make anybody any healthier. It just increases the amount of money being exchanged. Like if at the end of the day, you're going to get the treatment no matter what, and it's covered by your insurance company, it doesn't make any difference to you. All it does is incre- increase the b- amount of like this abstract money moving between two large bodies. So like if that's and, you what know, you're really in favor of, if that's like the thing that you're passionate about and that that, that should continue to um, exist, then like, cool. I, I can't get terribly excited about like, let's increase the amount of money being exchanged. <laughs> And the thing is, it's not just limited to specialty companies or small companies either. Like, big companies like Pfizer and Glaxo keep pushing through price increases as well, um, usually around the start of the year. So, you know, it's 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 been remarkable. Um, so the EpiPen, how... Is it about to go generic? Like, is it, is it running up against that um, that deadline, like the you other medications? Betcha. That's uh-huh. exactly what's going on. So in 2012, Mylan, which is the company behind EpiPen, settled a lawsuit by agreeing to allow a, a generic competitor into the market last year. Um, okay. And so they'd already been steadily raising the price of EpiPen. Like, this is not like, you know, it was 29 bucks or something, and now it's 600 you know. It didn't go from, from that to... to to the other in you know a day mm-hmm. but this is a really common thing so it's like a it's like a final attempt to get as much money as possible out of this drug but yeah so so basically before before the generics come to market they just try to squeeze like every single drop of blood out of that stone and so you know it used to be like a 10 percent price increase and now it's a lot more <laughs> Right. The thing is, like, the expected generic is from Teva, but it was unexpectedly rejected by FDA. 
And there was a non-generic alternative from Sanofi, but it got it got pulled from the market last year uh, because there were dosing problems. So Myelin basically has a monopoly for at least another year. And so it's one of those things where it's just like, there's there's not a lot you can do. Do you want your kid to die from anaphylaxis or not? <laughs> right. Well, this, uh, this does feel like another side of what we were talking about when we were talking about Theranos, which is the idea of, of conflating science and business. And in a way, like I feel like maybe people were a little more engendered to understand the way that Theranos was taking a kind of startup approach to science and health because we do kind of have a corporate approach to how we treat people in the medical system. Like, it's it's not like it's a foreign idea that's entering the way that we do health in the United States. No, I mean, like... Again, this is this is the system. This is the system we have set up, and it's how it works here. We don't have to have this system. There are other places where there's single payer, mm-hmm. um, and that's cheaper, and people tend to be healthier. We could, if we wanted to, decide that because drugs are medically necessary, we won't accept patents on them anymore, and that would change things quite a lot. But the thing that's really ironic to me, a lot, you know, uh, these these the drug companies will tell you, oh, you know, we do we charge so much for our prescription drugs because it's uh, so difficult to develop drugs, and they're right. A lot of drugs fail in development, and they're very expensive to bring to market. Like the figures vary. Um, mm-hmm. The really high end, which I would not trust, is two billion dollars. The really low end is something like 500 million. Either way, it's pretty expensive. Yeah. But (laughs) the thing that they don't mention is that a lot of these drugs actually were developed out of academia and licensed. And so places like MIT have licensing offices, patent licensing offices, for selling their the technology that they have developed to companies, some of which are, you know, formed around the technology itself, some of which just license. Like so for instance, you know, a company like Pfizer could potentially come to MIT after seeing something really cool in nature and be like, oh yes, we want to develop this novel antibiotic. That is a joke for those of you who are not familiar with science, because nobody ever wants to develop novel antibiotics because they don't sell. Because what happens is that doctors hold them back so that there won't be as much resistance. So there is no financial incentive to develop these life-saving drugs without which we cannot perform surgery and without which many of us would die. So FYI, that's why we have no antibiotics is because we have decided that medicine needs capitalism. Just so you know. Well, um, I mean, we have name, name one thing that capitalism hasn't helped, you know, inordinately. Sorry, we're a Bernie Bros podcast now, so... <laughs> But, but, I mean, like, if you go back to people like Jonas Salk, um, you know, we don't have polio anymore in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Like, we straight up don't have it. And uh, the only reason that was patented was to prevent somebody else from patenting it and selling it. And that was, like, viewed as a public good. It was the kind of thing that, like, that basically made a saint out of Salk. It's, it's worth contemplating, you know, the other incentives that, are, that exist for people to continue to develop drugs and become doctors and so on. Like, for instance, prestige and, I don't know, the general willingness to to do good in the world because... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because those things, I think, are probably going to be more powerful in terms of actually benefiting human health than money. Because, you know, right now the calculation is we don't need antibiotics because they don't sell, but we do need to develop, you know, drugs for feminine sexual dysfunction. And, like, I'm not saying that feminine sexual dysfunction isn't a problem. I'm just saying that antibiotics are a much more pressing problem. Right. Well, 
Uh, how much of this money, like these gobs and gobs of money, I mean, is it all going to researchers? Is it all going to these patents? Or how much of it is just going to, like, the top well, of these companies? That's what's really interesting, because pharmaceutical executives have never been paid so well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that's where part of it's going. Some of it's going to shareholders. And some of it, some of it is going to R&D, for sure, but not as much as it used to. So it seems like a lot of it is just ending up in the pockets of individual pharma CEOs who are getting very rich on you being sick. And the thing that I think is grossest about it, when you talk to people who don't believe in vaccination, they'll tell you that pharmaceuticals are a conspiracy meant to extract money from people mm-hmm. and the way that the system is set up it's very hard to argue against them because it, yeah right <laughs> i mean vaccines work but the thing is like the way that we have handled drug pricing means that you know medicine is a for-profit institution and so like for instance drug companies will pay doctors in order to quote unquote educate them about their products like they'll take them out to lunch or they'll take them out to resorts right. or they'll hire them as speakers and then those doctors seem to prescribe a lot more of the medications for the company that's paying them right. even though like it's not a straight pay for play kind of thing and this is the sort of thing that really destroys trust in the physician relationship and in American medicine full stop Like, this is a lot more pernicious than just, like, somebody, like, using your illness as a way of, like, squeezing money out of you. It's, it really, like... It goes all the way to Yeah. And into every single interaction. Yeah. It destroys trust in every single interaction, even when we know the drugs work really well and are, in fact, life-saving. So, you know, something to think about. Uh, Well, we can read more about this on The Verge, right? Uh, You've done a couple Mm -hmm. of reports on this now. We We have... Yeah, we've done a couple of reports on drug prices, and I am queuing up one of my slow takes. <laughs> so something will <laughs> Yay, show up in a week. Yay, slow takes. Well, speaking of giant companies destroying our trust in every interaction and transaction. um, Go on. Frank Ocean released not one album, but two albums this last weekend. Um, A very, very highly anticipated album. It had been four years since Channel Orange came out, which was a pretty much universally acclaimed uh, his first his first proper album, he had released a series of mixtapes before then, and that was in 2012. I was a big fan of that record, for what it's worth. So, you know, I, was, I, I, I don't, I have a hard time getting in on this, like, where's the album kind of, like, frenzy around things. I'm pretty, like, I don't know, it's, and again, one of these things that makes me feel old, because I'm just like, hey, guys, it's going to happen when it happens. I got so many other things to pay attention to and catch up with right now that, like, Frank can drop his album whenever he wants. Um, but it turns out he dropped two albums. One was Endless, which was a it was it's it's basically a video album, but not like not as much of a huge production as Beyonce's Lemonade, which was out earlier this year. This is just more one kind of continuous scene that goes for the length of the album, um, and that was on Apple Music as a video. And then that later that weekend, he released Blonde, which is like the most hotly debated album of the year, at least in terms of spelling. Nobody knows how to spell blonde. <laughs> um, well, it's it's a problem of gender, is it not? Yes, um, it is. Also, if you want the official explanation, 
not official, but at least like what's now the official explanation that it is blonde, B-L-O-N-D-E, but it is stylized as blonde with no E. <laughs> so it's well, sort I, of... I, 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 I assumed there was no E because he's on the cover and B-L-O-N-D is, is a male is blonde. the male blonde, yeah. It is ambiguous, like much of the album. I'm sure that this is fully intentional. I mean, it's basically like they'll say, they'll say stylized as blank anytime like somebody spells their name weird or capitalizes it weird or like... Bastille spells it with a triangle instead of an A. Um, <laughs> that's his stylization. So this is, you know, I mean, Frank Ocean's just like Bastille. That's 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 the end of my take. No, um, uh, but so you know, we got we got much more than we were expecting. We got a magazine. If you were living in New York and could um, hike out to his little pop-up store, which I did not, even though I was in New York, I was just it was having a very couch-bound weekend. But I. Wanted, I mean, I, I we can talk about the album itself and the music a little bit. I'm still kind of figuring out how I feel about a lot of it. But I think what's happened with um, how it's been released by Apple is kind of what I'm really interested in right now. Um, this was an Apple exclusive. A lot more and more artists are doing this, especially kind of the big artists that have large internet followings, I would say. It's not just like top line artists. It's it's big internet artists that tend to get these. Like Chance the Rapper had an exclusive on Apple. Drake obviously did. And then, you know, there's there are also the title artists. So, you know, Beyonce having her album on title for I think a week or something. Some like miserably small amount that you know that she just like railroaded Jay-Z for. So <laughs> we are just like getting into this era where these streaming services are essentially functioning as the albums. The streaming services have artists. I mean, there's like an 80% overlap in most of the material that's on any given streaming service. And there are like three major ones or four major ones right now. But the big headliner artists, a lot of those are exclusives. And this was sort of underlined this week when it came out that Endless, the video album that had been that's on um, Apple Music, that had been the fulfillment of Frank Ocean's contract with Universal Music Group and Def Jam. He, he, I guess he was just contracted to do like two albums or maybe he just had one and like it was a fight. I have no idea what the terms of the contract were because usually people do contracts for many albums. But he so that was the end of his contract. And then Blonde, um, which was formerly going to be called Boys Don't Cry, came which came out after, was officially outside of his contract. That was an independent release. There's also uh, it's also been reported like that the recording for Bo- Boys Don't Cry slash Blonde was funded by Universal. It cost like, you know, several million to produce and after the release of the album um, which was released exclusively on Apple also Apple paid the recording costs back to Universal so that they couldn't they didn't owe them anything so this is like very all this all sounds very businessy and like top level and kind of abstract maybe if you don't pay attention to this I stuff. I don't know. Often. I think I think pretty much anybody gets excited about screwing the record companies after the the CD wars of the 90s. Right. Yeah, I mean and this is this would be the second time that Apple has just like punched the record recording industry in the face because iTunes of course was like the beginning of the end. 
uh, or like the first kind of institutionalized blow because obviously there was file sharing before that. But then Apple's like, hey, look, everybody's doing this. Let's make money off this instead of CDs and let's make people come to us and associate us with the people who give them music as opposed to physical record stores and record labels. So this is just like making that like the full realization of that with this. And um, as a result, Universal Music, which is the largest record conglomerate or record group in the industry, they have put a total ban on um, exclusives for for streaming services, which is pretty wild. I imagine... I imagine they were going to do it anyway, and this provided them with a pretty nice excuse. Because, yeah. like, the thing is, like, they've had a couple of streaming things this year, like, right? Like, they had um, Life of Pablo, mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah. Which and, is also and, you another know, those, weird situation. Least, yeah. <laughs> right. Like, with, with those guys, like, they, they at least had, like, the number one to, like, sort of, like, you know, soothe the fact that they weren't getting as much revenue. But, mm-hmm. like, because Frank Ocean did this the way he did, Endless isn't even going to be a number one. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. They're not even selling. I don't think you can buy Endless. You can't buy a download of Endless. And I don't think that you can stream it just as music. I think it only exists as the video on Apple. That might have changed. Um, but I know that's how it was over the weekend. And I don't know that there were any plans to add just like the regular tracks, the way that Beyonce, you can just listen to Lemonade as tracks. You don't have to listen to the or watch the video. So this is pretty wild. It's also, you know, so in effect, then Apple is now Frank's label because Apple released the music. It, it paid it retroactively for the recording costs. And it promoted it like it and and very well, I would add, like it's like the top thing anytime you go onto the Apple store and like everybody knew this was going to happen. I mean, everybody knew that this album was coming in like, you know, I, I don't know what the download numbers or stream numbers are on it. I mean, just, let's be real. Nobody cares about the download numbers now, but I don't know what the stream numbers are, but it'll be interesting to see. I think the numbers will come out for this because it was a weekend release. I think we might not get them till next week, but this is sort of the first that we've seen somebody make that jump. I mean, people have brought up Chance because he was he's an independent artist. He doesn't have a label, so he just released through Apple. But that feels different than an artist that was with Universal Music Group ditching, like, basically the week of release and saying, yeah, like, Apple's my label now. Um, yeah, I mean, this was, like, a very hardcore undercutting of Universal yeah. by Apple. Like, they could have spaced that release out, and instead they did it, like, two days later? A day later? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, from what I understand, is it was a very stressful week. You know, they were, everybody was trying to really make sure he got the... Uh, got the music out there was a i think another a a big fear that he was going to push again because all this pushing from all reports that i have heard was on his end he he wanted to continue tinkering and and perfect the album and and finally you know apple had to push him and say no we need to have this out um so i have many questions about this. I want to know how good of a label Apple's going to be if that's a business it wants to get into. Um, 
it feels a little I I don't know if this is right but is this like an is this like an antitrust type situation or like a no no vertical integration or something just like the fact that the fact that I mean it's like the old studio systems where it's like you had the studios would make the films they owned the stars they'd put out a movie and that movie would only show in theaters owned by that studio like you know this is like back in the 30s before before that kind of got knocked down but it, it I I kind of wonder how good it's actually going to be for music I mean on the flip side now because you don't have because you you have Universal getting out of this exclusive games but they're not the entire industry so it's going to incentivize more artists I think in other on other labels, especially artists who like have been having notoriously hard times with their labels. Drake is one I can think of who has a very cozy relationship with Apple already. But like a lot of people will then say, okay, now now I'm gonna be represented by Spotify. Spotify is gonna be my label. So then you're gonna have that situation where you yeah, you it, it makes it even more clear that everybody's just gonna to have to have subscriptions to like five different streaming services if they wanna have access to every single, you know, A list artist. It's gonna be like cable. It's gonna be like Yeah. And I mean it is gonna be like cable. That's the thing, is that it's so if you zoom out and you look at how this is all tra- and this is the same with TV right now. When you look at how this is all kind of shaking out. I think like Netflix and other streaming services are another good example of this. We're just building cable television again. That's the only place it's going. I think I talked about this like a year ago on Chris yeah. Pl- Chris Plant's podcast, uh, What's Tech, when I was talking about TV. Um, but it, it's just, it, it's just, I want us to just fast forward to that because that's obviously where we're going. Like, it's just going to be radio again, and you're going to have, like, four different channels. <laughs> and, like, they're all Except on-demand you're channels. you to pay for them all now. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's the thing. You, you pay one pay bill. You all of them. You pay one bill, and you get Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, and Amazon. And, uh, and, and no, and then Tidal won't be around anymore. I still have Tidal, but it, it's apparently going away. Um, oh, is it? I didn't it know. It got bought by Apple. <laughs> oh shit! I guess I'm gonna be an Apple Music user now. I I didn't know. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I should cancel my subscription. I bought it for Lemonade, as you may recall, and have well, been happy, I got happy it with because it since. They, they have. That's the only streaming service that has a Princess catalog Prince. on on it. Yeah. But then I was like, uh, you know, I do have half of Prince Prince's albums like as downloads on Amazon that I bought ages ago. I can just re-download those and like pay for the rest of his albums and then have them all available to me and like not have to pay that monthly fee for title. <laughs> so yeah. that's probably I mean, what I'm like, going to do. Yeah. I, I wonder if we're going to see a move back to physical music because I mean like one of the things that like I have Prince's albums, mm-hmm. like records. Um, and so while everybody was complaining about how hard it was to find Prince's music streaming, I was playing my records. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I have the I have the streaming services on my phone for when I travel. Like that's literally what they're for. Like if I'm on transit or like yeah. I'm someplace that's not home, like that's why I have them because I I have physical objects. Yeah, and um, I think and so I think I wonder, the problem is that that's like that's the majority of when so many people listen to music. If you don't have a uh, your lifestyle does not have you at your house a lot then having a big record collection only goes so far and people want to listen to music in all those different places. It makes me a little concerned. It makes me also feel like I should just get back into older musicians that I like and not worry so much about needing to like listen to 
whatever new release by a big artist the week it comes out, except for the fact that um, it's a part of my job, so I have to. But <laughs> now I'm paying for four streaming services, so that's that's my life. That's the life I am living right now. I think in total, between all the streaming services I'm paying for, I think it comes to like $100 a month for everything. <laughs> wow, that's a lot. <laughs> it's my job. Um, so... We'll be back in a second to talk about some more content. So it was a big content weekend for Emily Oshida this last weekend. Um, Tell me more. So in addition to Blonde and Endless coming out, uh, I had the chance I'm, I'm a, a privileged in the privileged position of getting to see the first five episodes of season three of Halt and Catch Fire the first two I guess aired they did a surprise airing of the first one on Sunday night and then I think then they showed that one and the second one on Tuesday night so I'm not really sure like this double episode thing is happening a lot Mr. Robot is doing it as well but I have talked about the show we had Chris Rogers and Cantwell uh Rogers and Cantwell on on the podcast I think it was our first podcast I think it was our first I think that's right ESP. yeah and they and I I just continue to love the show that's <laughs> that is my that's my take on it it's it's become I think it's really just improved exponentially each year and this year you know our crew has all decamped to your homeland or your your turf they're all in um silicon valley or in san francisco i guess i guess it's a little bit like first of all san francisco is not silicon valley i know (laughs) well it was yeah i guess they're in san francisco it's it's kind of funny there's uh They've they've kind of done it cleverly. Uh, the office that Mutiny has taken over, Mutiny is the games turned chat community uh, turned uh, spoiler alert uh, marketplace uh, that they Ooh. that um, Cameron and Donna start in season two. Their office in San Francisco is like an old detective office. It looks like like it's got those high ceilings and the kind of um, partitioned off offices with the glass or the frosted glass doors it was just like very noir which is like total San Francisco to me it makes me think of like vertigo or something like that um <laughs> so it's kind of cool it also is like it is uh straight out of Blade Runner as well which is great because Blade Runner like came out concurrently with when the show is set so <laughs> um I just like geek on these little details But yeah, I mean, mostly the thing that always kind of catches my breath when I'm watching Halt and Catch Fire catches my breath is the relationship between the two female characters. I think we, you know, we tend to whine a little bit on the show about how different char- female characters are treated in TV shows and in and, and movies. And the, it's such a wonderful example of how to do it right that, like, it makes me feel really protective and, like, almost emotional about just the existence of Donna and Cameron on this show because they're two women who are very different and have decided to start a business together. And their relationship is as co-workers who clash not because they're fighting over a man or having like irrational emotions but because they're working really hard and they're stressed out 
and they have different approaches to things. It's like purely about process as experienced by two characters who happen to be women. And it's so exciting <laughs> to watch. It feels <laughs> so unusual. Um, but also just like normal. I think it's interesting. I, I know, you know, a lot of people who've watched the show, obviously, like, I tend to talk to men about this show because that's just how it works, I guess. I know a lot of, like, male TV writers and culture critics and stuff. And, and their reaction to her, uh, to Cameron's character, uh, who's played by Mackenzie Davis, is... Oh, that's such a that's such an interesting character. That's such a that's such a strange character. And what what is what is interesting or strange about her? I again, I have not watched this show. Well, she okay. So she's um, you know, she, the words that get used to describe Cameron the most in reviews of Hot and Catch Fire are androgynous, uh, antisocial punk girl, and she's a programmer. She's oh, supposed to be okay. a gen, a genius programmer. In the first season, she's got like this really. Uh, close cut kind of I feel like it's a haircut that like Daryl Hannah had at one point or something like she's got like this sort of boyish cut um, wears a lot of like vintage t-shirts and stuff has like a very blunt manner and I think her her character has softened somewhat over the past couple years but I mean that's still her defining characteristic is still that she's like bad with people and doesn't have a very good bedside manner as a manager but when I watch her character especially in this season I'm like that's just like this character actually just feels like people that I know like especially internet people who don't have very good uh social <laughs> skills with people i mean it does feel and obviously she's a person who's working in tech like you know she's she's gravitated towards this for a reason but like i still feel like her reactions to things feel very normal uh like and contemporary and i think it's interesting that you know I, even though i love my friends who are culture commentators who are men like that they think that that's unusual. I don't know. It's well, this actually, this kind of brings me back to something I did see, which was Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. And I saw a lot of people talking about whether the Kate McKinnon character was a, was was real or, like, some kind of joke. And, like, to me, that was, like, the, the character that is, like, closest to my own self that I have ever <laughs> seen on television yeah. or film, like, you know, like, right down to, holy shit, we're going to have some explosions, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's going to be cool, you know, and and listening to people talk about whether, you know, like, there were real women like that, I realized, like, people don't realize that we're out here because we don't get written as yeah. mad scientists. The mad scientist is always a guy. And so, like, so, too, is the, the antisocial programmer, now that I'm thinking of it. Like, yeah. that is another role that is almost always male. And, like, I definitely know those women. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, they make, like, your internet work. And they do, yeah, they're, like, they're all there. It's just, there's still a kind of, I think, rigid expectation about or like Or, like, okay, sure, you can have this rebellious punk girl programmer, but, like, she's going to act like a person that's never existed on the face of the earth. Like, she's going to be, like, a collection of cliches. Um, like and the girl with the dragon tattoo, right. are you thinking of her? Yeah, yeah, like she'll be a symbol of something instead of a person. And it's just so not how they've handled this character. And I just like continue to be surprised and really appreciative of it. And I wasn't even the biggest fan of the character personally in the first season, but like I've come to really, really, um, really love her. And 
Um, yeah, and I'm excited to see what happens. There's a really, um, I, I've watched four, five episodes and I'm not, you know, purposefully not doing spoilers, but there's also just like a lot of really interesting stuff about these characters kind of, there's a very subtle culture differences between, not so subtle, but like the culture differences uh, on the West Coast and with San Francisco people and stuff and sort of like, it nods to a bunch of cliches that we know about, but doesn't say them out loud in a way that I think is like written very well. Yeah, I just I, I want people to watch this show. I think it's so I think it's really special and I think it's gotten so much better with every year. Um, so there is, um, this actually kind of brings to mind a, a book that I like a lot called Close to the Machine. Mm-hmm. And it is by a kind of androgynous um, punk girl. Uh huh. <laughs> who was a programmer during the internet boom and bust in the 90s. Her name is Ellen Ullman. The book was published in 1997. Uh-huh. Um, if you want to know what those punk girls are like, Close to the Machine <laughs> is written by one, and it's about that experience, and it's a memoir, and it's incredible. Man, I'll have to check that out. I'm like... I, I'm I'm about to do a tear. I think of like she is that in uh, Silicon Valley or in in the Bay Area or something. San, Fr- San Francisco proper, yeah. Yeah, she's like I think she's running her own computer consulting business okay. and like lives where she works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's she's like she's written another book um, called By Blood that's fiction that was like really really highly acclaimed and came out like a year or two ago. But this Close to the Machine to me is a better book. Well, yeah, I I'm I think I'm about to have like a a multi. Bay Area set book spree because I just got the uh, Jeffrey Tubin's book about Patty Hearst. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, which I am going to eat uh, eat up on vacation. It's going to be. I'm really excited to read. It's like please mail me your copy when you're done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like it's a for people who don't know. It's a guy who did the book um, that the uh, American Crime Story was based off of the the people versus oj was based off of so it's going to be a very exhaustive um portrait of a crime which i cannot i'm usually not like a true crime fan but i've always been fascinated by this case so i'm excited about it yeah, I mean, for those of you who don't know, I don't know who these people would be, but let's imagine they're <laughs> out there. Teens! Patty, <laughs> teens, if you are under the age of, I don't know, 30 and have never heard about this, <laughs> Patty Hearst um, is an heiress who very briefly was also a terrorist. Yeah, and she claimed she got brainwashed by a uh, yeah a terrorist group in Berkeley in 1973, I think. I was asking my mom because my mom lived in Berkeley like right after that. I was like, "Were you there when it happened? Like, was it crazy?" And she she came right after the whole you know it, it all kind of died down, but still. <laughs> um, it's also the origin if you are, for instance, a Zevon fan of the final line of Roland the Headless Tom. Thompson Gunner. Uh-huh. Patty Hearst heard the burst of Roland's Thompson gun and bought it. <laughs> nice. We'll have to do a whole Patty Hearst themed episode. I'm looking forward to it. Also, fun fact, her daughter just married Chris Hardwick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on here. I think it's public knowledge. Um, <laughs> um, you know, you know, I love fiction. I really do. But I, I have never read a single work of fiction that's as weird as the real world. Yeah, it's true. It's true. 
why we why we do what we do. Well, I think that about does it for us this week. But please, if you have not yet, subscribe to Virgie SP on iTunes and give us a wonderful rating. Just like break out your best $5 words when describing our podcast. And uh, and you can also find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash ESP. Also on Spotify if you're on mobile. And you can write to us on Twitter. Write to us. Send us a nice letter on Twitter. Uh, I am at Emily Yoshida and Liz is at Miss Lopato, M.S. Lopato. And that does it for us. All right. Take care, folks. <laughs>